I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch Reup. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, yo, that's Alf! It's Andy Greenwald! Yo, can I say something that probably is a little bit damning, but I'm going to say it anyway? Sure. When No Alf slander, Chris, though. Don't slander Alf. No, no, the opposite. I, I'm a big Alf head from way back. Chris, um... You know, obviously, we're going to talk about uh, last night's Mr. Robot, which was pretty wild, pretty dope. Um, I caught Paul Fusco's name in the credits, and I was like, oh, Alf's, Alf's stepping up to the plate? You, like, Alf got wait, the Wait, you can just spot Fusco like that? Like, what does he do? Is he Alf's voice? I was looking for Fusco. <laughs> he, he's the creator of, of Alf. Nice. He's the puppeteer. Yeah. He's He's... Yeah, man, that's Alf right there. And I think the fact that I knew that means I probably should be working in and around television like that, or I should be committed. Yeah. Like, I think that that's, it's one or the other. Or you but I just, like, to be honest, I, I grew up in the 80s and watched Alf. You don't have to, you don't have to like, but I didn't give think, your life over to something. Here's what I thought, though, Chris, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this episode with you. And then we're going to go all in on Stranger Things because I finished. And I cannot wait to talk about the entirety of the series. Um, speaking of the eighties, I, I thought maybe that, you know, that, that, he, that basically that Sam Esmail was going to give Fusco some of that Buono look, you know what I mean? Just like a little, just a little bit of that love. Like I didn't think it was going to be Alf. I thought maybe he would be puppeteering something else. So you think giving, Sam Esmail was sitting work. around one day being like, what about Fusco though? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I thought maybe he was going to cast Fusco as just like, you know, like the mom part, you know, like not the exciting part, but like throw, basically throw him a bone. Okay. Like, like Buono. But I feel like we got to get into this. We got to get into this robot. Yeah, let's talk about because... Mr. Robot. I think that that was um, uh, uncommon move to have the showrunner, the creator of a show, say on Twitter, "Make sure you see you watch the commercials tonight, guys." Like to that's what Sam Esmail did on Wednesday afternoon. I think he was like, you know, everybody, if you're if you're going to stream it, like I really recommend you watching the the DVR, the like the or the live version of the show because of what we do. What's, you'll see some stuff, and it wound up being that the first half of the show was largely set or was a was a take on 80 sitcoms, and that even the commercials featured um, vintage USA Network ads and even an old Bud Light ad and a, a mm-hmm. couple of um, sort of faux vintage E-Corp ads. I loved I loved it. I loved all of it. I loved. First of all, I, I let me let me jump in by saying. I think in general, more networks would be down with their showrunners tweeting, hey, guys, please watch the ads. Yeah, so I seriously. think he was way out on a limb with that one. <laughs> that, that, was, that was definitely not like Ghost in the Machine stuff. Um, but this, is a, this, this episode was, I think, an enormous... Um, it was obviously a shot of adrenaline creatively for the season and for the show. But I think it was also... I hope a shot of reassurance that this is still the show that people fell in love with because this was so balls to the wall, playful and crazy and inspired and fun and fun top to bottom. As you're saying, like the opening, the, the you know, not just the way that the, the, that the, that it was shot so that it had that video grainy look, but the, the USA promos and the whole spirit of the thing, the laugh track, the outfits. I mean, every, 
dude, our dude, um, you know, the president from House of Cards, the guy who plays Gideon, that guy's got to be the best sport in the universe because yeah, he showed just up to come back again. for one day to get run over. Yeah, to get run over by Alf. <laughs> so, I, I want TV shows and art to do these things. I want, I want that. And what and what made me particularly the other thing that I was I particularly loved about it was that it was a sign once again that that Sam Esmail is aware that when he is filming like the season so far we've talked about how it's been a little bit slow it's been a little bit involved it's been very much in Elliot's head and it's been very dark very dark um, in terms of the subject matter and in terms of the framing and even literally dark in terms of the lighting he knows that these are aesthetic choices this is not his vision of what things should look like these are the aesthetic choices he is making for the story he was telling and that what we saw last night for the first 15 minutes was as much a celebration of the 80s aesthetic as it was a, as it was a comment on the aesthetic of his show the rest of the time do you know what i mean okay i think it was i think it was very self-aware and very enjoyable because it was so self-aware i enjoyed the episode and i definitely feel like i agree with you that it was um it had the feel of a of a train getting back on the tracks for sure but just to play devil's advocate let me let me throw this out there okay yeah, yeah. What was it about? Because I I feel like the, the that is part? part of what. Yeah, no. Just I think it, I think what people are saying about the show. No, I think what the the here's a criticism of the show is that I'm starting to lose the uh, true north of what this is, and I think that part of it is because so much of the dialogue takes place, so much of the conversation in the show takes place within one character's brain. And that the dialogue in those scenes between Christian Slater and uh, Rami Malek are so laden with, like, they don't have, like, a fixed point in a, in a real world. They're, like, talking about feelings and about your the emotional scars that people have. And I don't feel like I remember what the show is about sometimes when, the, when those scenes, like, you can get lost. You don't know where the shore is. And then to get right. to the end of this episode... Where there's such like a beautifully acted and well written and incredibly real scene between two characters, and I actually to his to Sam's credit, I was like, I wonder if that's a real memory. You know, I don't, I don't know whether that's like the perfect version, the, flash, the, the flashback scene. Yeah, where they where and then the smash cut to black. Like I thought that was awesome. I was like, this is great. Um. But sometimes in the murk of like, you know, we the truth is too hard, so we have to tell ourselves lies. And this deeper and deeper and deeper into Elliot's mind and the things that he creates. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that was a gift to him from his father, that his father wanted to take him away from the pain. And he has this ability to pull Elliot out of reality and put him into, you know, these these sort of imagined safe rooms in his mind, these panic rooms yeah. almost. It, but it does get a little murky in terms of the audience's connection to what is centrally happening and why we're watching the show. I, I think that's a fair point. And first of all, I should mention, do you know about the original cut of this episode where it didn't end with that smash cut? I don't. Where it ended with with uh, Christian Slater's character saying, you know, anything you want, first thing that pops into your mind, you can name my, my store. And then Elliot was and, like, what about Best young Buy? Young Elliot goes... <laughs> No, young Elliot goes software, etc. And then he goes, CompuServe. Oh, sorry, it just came to my head. He's like, GameStop. <laughs> and then Christian Slater's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah buddy. And that's then it a says, good idea. Executive producer, 
Sam Esmail, exactly. And then it's like, he, um, and then Elliot really wakes up, and he's the heir to the CompuServe fortune. His, his father's name wasn't Alderson, right? It was. It's, it was the show uh, is Edward actually Circuit called City. Mr. Staples. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an amazing alternate reality. Yeah. Um, he, he, I think you're making a very good point, but I think that it's often worth taking a step back, if if possible when it comes to the show, because in the same way that it's possible to sort of lose yourself, to lose oneself in the trees and not the forest, and this idea that, you know, remember we talked about some of the criticism of it, of the show early in the season and the end of last season of people saying the politics were kind of simplistic, but of course that was never really the point. Um, you know, it really wasn't just about overthrowing or anarchy because it's more about how impossible that really is. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated that so much of this season is about um, illusions of control and the trap of stories and it's possible to watch that flashback scene with young Elliot and his actually living father and think of it as a very very sweet thing but it's also possible to look at it through the prism of his father being a controlling and potentially abusive in some ways if not physically we don't really know what happened when he went out the window but uh, abusive emotionally because what he's telling him is I guess on some level intended to comfort Elliot but it's it's not comforting in any way right because he tells him i'm sick i lost my job but that's your secret it's our secret now so it's a burden he's giving him first and foremost and then secondly he says i'll always be with you i'll always be there for you a second after he said more or less that he's probably going to die um i don't know if these are kindnesses and i like the fact that the scene plays on two levels um so that we can sort of feel how elliot obviously has mental issues that you know remain i think this is probably good not specifically spelled out or diagnosed in the in the in the show but we begin to understand why he would seek solace in in fiction and mm-hmm. whether that fiction is an old episode of alf or an old you know a ghost image of his father or this illusion of himself as a superhero we start to sort of we can we can see the makings of that in addition to learning something essential about the history of these people can i just do some very basic service. Can I rely on you for some very basic service journalism right here? Yeah, that's what uh, I'm here for. Okay. Um, they they do call you Mr. Vox. Uh, just what <laughs> they, is they? They don't. They do. <laughs> go go okay. on, Mr. Staples. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just. I want to figure out where we are in this in this show right now, plot wise, in the most basic terms. Last sure. season, Elliot and his sister perform a hack on a huge corporation that brings the financial markets like to a standstill to cripples like wipes out personal debt there's obviously a lot that comes out out of out of that Mm -hmm. this season Mm -hmm. elliot is living in his mother's house meets this guy who basically has is on on the dark net selling ak-47s and human beings and he's like, mm-hmm. can you do a little bit of uh, server maintenance for me? But don't look. And Elliot looks, and he gets his ass kicked. And now he's like in a kind of trance state where, where he needs to be on ALF to escape the pain of his beating. <laughs> there, They were aided in this first hack by somebody, like a group called the Dark Army, which is from China, right? Right. Which is led by yeah. B.D. Wong. It certainly seems to be that but way, is, although B.D. Wong officially... is also a minister within the Chinese government. Yes, and it seems like State the hack security. was almost done in with the with the with the the knowledge of the person in charge of E Corp. 
Yes. Okay. It, we we're certainly led to believe that the two people who would seem to be would seem to have a lot to lose because of this hack are also directly involved in it. Right. And then Bill Price and a- Angela, uh, and, who and works at E Corp now, is yeah. helping them perform another hack that will finally change the world forever. No, Angela's okay. helping them hack the FBI hack because the FBI. they need to find out how much the FBI knows about them. Gotcha. And okay. how close they are to being arrested or not. Right. Okay. And, and Angela agreed to do it because she found out that her dopey ex-boyfriend had probably spoken to the FBI. Right. And then what is the deal with what the Dark Army is doing now? Like, why are they... I, I, I think the thing you need to remember as you try to unpack all this is that Alf eats cats. <laughs> and he eats cats because he's not from our planet. It's, his planet is called Melmac. That's good. Um, That's good. It's, it's, you know what? I think that it's really easy in this day and age with like Twitter and Snapchat mm-hmm. to forget about Melmac. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I don't want you to lose sight of the big, big global picture. Interstellar picture, really. By the way, Interstellar would have been a lot better if Alf was in it. I'm just going to say, if, <laughs> if it was got, Alf instead of Matt Damon. If they opened up the bag and instead of Matt Damon, it was Alf. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. much better would that movie have been? Think about how many movies you could say that about. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously, this is what the Fuscos have been arguing in Hollywood for the last 30 years. If Benicio you know, Del Toro like... finally gets to the Hacienda and, and he gets to the dinner table in Sicario and it's Alf eating yes. dinner. And wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. I'm just saying, this is what the Fuscos have been arguing for 30 years. They're yeah. like, what about Alf, though? What about those Fuscos, though? Um, what is the, anyway? Your question is: What is the Dark Army actually? Yeah, doing I just I think I was like, why? What's up with your boy Cisco getting the the needle in the finger? And yeah. what are they trying to do here? Are they trying to like are, are the Dark Army now trying to hack F Society? I, I think I think the implication of a lot of this is that we thought that F Society were these revolutionary actors, but they may in fact have been pawns in playing a game that they didn't realize they were even even playing, and. The idea that they are just still walking around out there suggests, you know, that, that, that they haven't been arrested. You know, they're edgy about that because they don't understand. Are they being kept out of it? Are they being saved for later? Like, what is actually going on? Here? Okay. Uh, so I think that's, I think, <laughs> if they're thinking what's actually going on here, that may be a, maybe the audience is saying that a little bit too. But, you know, I, I, I really... I, I just really liked this episode a lot for the subtle things too. I mean, I like, I like a good caper. I like the tension in that scene. scene. I thought, I and thought I, Portia I, I love that they're back to uh, to you know being on the on the head headphones head like telephone call while you're talking to somebody else, and they're hacking yep. the guy while I, you're talking to them. I was a great I, callback. I'm really bad at that, by the way. I would be really, really bad. Like if someone, I, I would forget which one I was talking to out loud. Next time you do, you want if you're in like a social situation and you have your headphones and you want to call me and I just go, "What about Buono though?" Like the entire time you're talking to somebody, I, I, I mutter that to myself in social situations now. Like Angela mutters, "Like you will succeed." Like I, I talk about her, but um, um but I, but just one last thing, like a, yeah. just on a on a on a on a smaller level, I, I liked there was some surprising thematic symmetry in the episode because if you go back to the beginning when ray and again craig robinson's doing great work this season too um for a part that kind of that I, I, he's doing a great job with a part that i think is a little bit tough he says um you know that speech the menacing speech he gives about the dog basically realizing that everybody's got she master. wasn't independent mm-hmm. and and basically wanted to die and you know i think that's a lot of what the season is about is in that speech um 
I, I was thinking about that scene when we got to the end of the episode and and uh, Dom Dom DePero's return to her favorite bodega for the turkey sandwich, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we see the limits of this quote unquote kind relationship. You know, she puts on this this happy face, and she we saw you know we we it 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 was a so in some ways it was a callback to the the season premiere where she has this relationship with the guy who runs the bodega that the other people in line don't, and she asks about his family. And he's basically like, my life is ruined. I cannot do this anymore. And she's like, gosh, that's really too bad. But can you make me a sandwich? Right. You know? Right. There's these levels of control and performance and stories and interaction that are just... there. Are, those are the things that will keep me coming back to the show. Those things and Alf. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back too. We'll, we'll talk more about Mr. Robot next week on The Re-Up. But let's, uh, let's wrap up Stranger Things for folks here. Hey guys, just want to tell you a little bit what, about our sponsors. One of them is Texture. Thanks to pizza, we're all binge eating. Thanks to Netflix, we're all binge watching. But now with Texture, you can start binge reading. Trust me, it's about to be a thing. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place. Texture has completely reimagined magazines, giving you the articles and stories you really want all in one place, plus interactive features, videos, and recommendations just for you. I was just reading The New Yorker the other day on Texture. It was just a great experience lying in bed before I go to, be, to go to sleep. And I was just got to catch up on back issues that I hadn't read recently. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. You could actually build your own magazine, which is the coolest thing about Texture. I like to go through a bunch of issues of stuff, whether it's GQ or New Yorker, and just nab a couple of things that I want and then at there at the end when I'm done I have like my own sort of curated magazine experience sign up for texture now and get in gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications the best part texture is offering listeners of the watch a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash watch you'll gain immediate entry to all the top magazines including back issues and bonus video content start binge reading for free right now when you go to texture.com slash watch that's texture.com slash watch also want to tell you guys about SeatGeek. buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time it's always been hard to find the best deal for a game or show you want to go to and none of those older ticket sites want to change that but SeatGeek is different they've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets SeatGeek is always the first place I go to look for tickets for a game or concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. I just used it the other day to look for Adele tickets because that's the kind of caring, sensitive husband that I am. With SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling in tickets from all other available sites, put them in one place, you save time, you never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every SeatGeek ticket is given a grade based on its value, so you'll immediately see any underpriced seats be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, listeners of The Watch get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's really cool, right? To get $20, a $20 rebate on your tickets, download the free SeatGeek app and you go to settings and click add a promo code. Enter promo code WATCH and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first Se- first ticket purchase. I don't know what's better than that. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. Okay, Andy, so you got to finish Stranger Things. Uh, this has been, um, it's been so fascinating to watch like the the fan excitement around this show grow and grow and grow. And, uh, you know, Barb become an icon of American popular culture. And people were doing, uh, I saw that the 
the Eagles tweeted at the Buccaneers yesterday a picture, a, a gif of eleven. Um, Did they really? Yeah, I can't remember what it was about. Like it was something like just you know team social media beef. But um, let me t- let me hear from you about what your sort of takeaways were from the end of the season. I think whenever you have like a sci-fi show like this or a sci-fi based show. The, the landings are always the toughest thing because it's that's when you actually have to be like it's an alien you know and that's when people are like oh is that it so what did you think i thought they i, I it's hard to think of uh, a recent entertainment where they 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 threaded that needle more skillfully and i want to talk about like the ending in terms of what it means for the future of the show uh in a minute i want to come back to that but if we're just going to consider this as a closed story yeah you know, or at least a closed season I can't think of a better way that they could have handled it because, as you as you, you rightly said, the mon- there always has to be a monster. It always has to be defeated one way or another. Um, but what was so skillful skillful about the finale was really what was true about the season, I thought, which was that it very, very uh, carefully tracked multiple characters' emotional emotional journeys and it allowed the finale the the duffer brothers constructed the finale in a way that honored all those three different levels of characters the the little you know the the boys and and 11 uh the teenagers and the adults and the thing that i was most excited to talk to you about having finished the season uh after i finished it i then went and read a bunch of the interviews that they had done and you know did the thing that we all deny ourselves because we were afraid of spoilers and I was really happy to see that the Duffer brothers actually talked about this as, as, as the same point that I wanted to make, which was we should just take a second to acknowledge how rare it is for a show to track multiple uh, to groups of characters of different ages. Um, the fact that the show was about the adults and about the teenagers and about the smaller kids. Mm-hmm. This shouldn't be a big deal, but it weirdly is. Um, if you think back to... Um, I guess Friday Night Lights did that well. show that we all love that didn't do that well. That did that. Friday Night Lights did that. Um, The OC did that to some degree. Parenthood does that. What's that? Parenthood did it. Parenthood did a little bit, yeah. So Kadams likes to do it. But in general, in my limited experience being in those rooms back when I was pitching stuff years ago, before Grantland, the number one... So I I had had the... I'm sorry to talk about this, but so I had a spec script that was like about... It was about a teenager was the main character, but there were also adult characters. Literally, they were like, well, if it's either going to go to MTV or ABC Family, because no one else will make a character, a show about young people. Young people have young people shows. Old people have old people shows. And I I assume they were talking about Blue Bloods. But (laughs) this is a huge shame, you know. And and the Duffer Brothers talked about how they got that same reaction in 2016 from a lot of the more traditional outlets where they pitched the show. Netflix either, and you can look at this two ways. Netflix either is like forward thinking and they don't care, or they're putting on 70 original productions at every given moment. And they're like, we literally don't have time to care. Make the show you want to make. Right. But I love the fact that that finale was constructed so that, um, you know, the Joyce and Hop were in the upside down tracking it. The teenagers were tracking them and trying to get the monster and the kids were hiding and dealing with Matthew Modine and it all came together and giving each level of the story a moment. I thought that was really satisfying. Yeah, uh, I thought that the, the the last episode suffers from the same thing that um, almost anything, almost any television show or movie suffers from, which is there's a lot of like, we have to run back to the gym. We have to run back to our house. And like the geography of the town was set up so well in the previous seven episodes that mm-hmm. it got a little compressed there, you know, uh, and I think that anybody would be pressed to um, 
explain the logic of the upside down world. Although the Duffers do have, you know, you're talking about those interviews. They do seem to have like at least in their minds like a pretty set idea of the physics of that world and like the actual dimensions of it. Um, I was thinking about how you know now that there is probably I mean, almost definitely going to be a second season and about these characters. I was thinking about how it's almost a shame that when you get to the end of a first anything, whether it's a first in a trilogy of movies or a first season, um, Lost is pretty unique in this, where I actually don't want to know more about the Upside Down world. I'm much more into Hawkins. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of like I'm I'm not prematurely throwing cold water on something that I already really, really enjoyed. But it, it is kind of that thing where you're like, do you, do you really want to know more about the Department of Energy's experiments in the Upside Down? Or do you do you want to go back to riding bikes and like playing D and I I completely agree with you. I I don't. I was going to come at it from a different place, which is to say I don't. I kind of wanted to let some of these people be because you know what a great story we had with them, and I don't want to go to the next the next chapter where it might get a little more disappointing or it might get a little more uh, forced or or violent or whatever. Um, to your point about like them knowing about the the logistics of the upside down, one thing to really call out about the show is it got a lot of attention for the nostalgia and the throwback nature of it, and you know the eighties references. Another thing that is very nostalgic and throwback about it is that it didn't worry too much about the plausibility or the physics no, about a lot of it stuff, didn't. and I really admired that. It was almost as if it was made for a a non Wikipedia universe or a non Reddit universe. Um, you know, to to the point where, and I'm so like, how much worse would the show have been if we showed scenes of them talking to the doctors at Hawkins Hospital, being like, "Well, he's been freezing with an alien lizard in his throat in an alternate dimension for a week." You know what right. I mean? Or, or if they were like trying to explain literally what happened to some of these people, or relate what Matthew Modine was doing to the government in a larger way. It that, there's nothing good can come from going down that road. So I was glad that they mostly stayed away from it. Um, the only the the only disappointment I had about the finale was the fact that it was that they did this. And frankly, it's a smart thing that they laid a lot of track for season two. Right. That will is coughing sort of up stuff that, and that 11 is obviously still out there somewhere. I was sort of hoping that it would be kind of a light anthology series. Yeah. Meaning, meaning next season we would pick up with, with Hopper somewhere else and maybe 11 somewhere else. And maybe we could have one episode back in Hawkins or we could revisit something, but it would really be more about spooky things happening. And I don't know whether he becomes the Fox Mulder of this or the Han Solo of this or whatever. But, you know, it, it's really more about different windows into different weird worlds. So it really is like a Stephen King thing. You know what I mean? Not just about the same town. But obviously, you know, you have, you have cast members that people have fallen in love with. You have a certain thing that people have fallen in love with. And Matthew Modine definitely, he definitely doesn't die. And, you know, they made a big deal of even mentioning that in their interviews that, you know, well, we didn't see him get killed. So, and plus, I mean, we can't let Steve win like that, right? No. Steve caught a, Steve had a big W in the finale. <laughs> Double W. Um, I think that Jonathan like that Jonathan Jonathan made another mixtape my other about it the other uh, I see first of all I'm team Steve I dig Jonathan but I feel like Steve got a bum rap he was trying to do the right thing you know he didn't ask to be born into wealth (laughs) 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 he's got good hair (laughs) does he though yeah yeah sure good is that good hair I mean he's got one direction hair um yeah 
I do think actually the 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 upside for the second season and for continuing this story is there's a couple of things. One is you've got yourself a really fun collection of young actors. And yeah, um, we should talk about that. Yeah. Childhood is difficult and puberty is even harder, but it will be fun to see these kids in two years or a year and a half um, and watch them go into high school and maybe grow apart a little bit and then come back together or whatever it is they decide to do with this group of people. And furthermore, like these relationships can change. So who knows? Maybe maybe Barb comes back. You know what I mean? <laughs> like maybe Barb comes back and claims Steve for, for her own. Uh, yeah, I, let, I mean, let, let, let's let's split that into two 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 points. One is, you know, who whoever did the casting for the show gets all the made up awards that we can give them yes. because, you know, like Freaks and Geeks, it, it it it's pretty rare to get any to get one or two good young actors to get so many of them and then to see them blossom and have fun with each other and, and really and put them in positions to succeed. Um, you know, Millie Bobby Brown is getting all the credit for being 11 and she deserves it. She's amazing. But the kid who played Mike, who has an awesome name also, by the way, Finn Wolfhard. I feel like Wolfhard was signed to Interscope in like 2006. I, definitely. But, they were on tour with Jet for a while. <laughs> but, but, but like that kid really stepped up and was terrific. Um, obviously the kids who played Dustin and Lucas were great too. I, I think Natalia Dyer, who played Nancy was really good too, because the, they wrote these parts that are, archetypal in two ways but you know like the good girl and the the bad boy but they're also commenting on those parts and so to be able to play those play both sides of that the sort of the winking at it but also celebrating it while never really winking which is something the show didn't do i think it's pretty spectacular so you're right i mean you can't get a cast like that and then and then walk away from it yeah Um, absolutely but what about barb though i know i I mean they did barb dirty right like I got. I gotta say that they did. I was I, pretty surprised well, it's, about that. It's funny because like they got the Winona Sans right. They bet big on Harbor and won. They got every kid oh God, right. Yeah. They got Steve right. They got Steve's car right. Um, <laughs> but when they they cast Barb and they were like Barb Barb will go out in E four and it'll be okay or E five, and man, like the people want Barb back. They're they got murals up for that girl. Like big pun. They should. Yeah. I mean, she the actor was great. The part was was fun and good and necessary and familiar. And I don't think she deserved to just to just get, you know, God, she got like they killed Kenny. Do you know what I mean? Like she just kind of got they just kind of forgot about her. They were all just high fiving again and buying each other new pen taxes and Barb got murked. You know? Like I also don't really understand like Will survive for a really long time by being cold huddled in his in his upside down um, castle, but then he then they then the monster caught him, but didn't eat him. Like plugged him into the wall and put worms in his throat. Yeah. So while they were all just like you know doing my favorite, while they were doing the homage to my favorite scene from The Abyss with Ed Harrison, Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio, and then like Will comes back to life and they're like celebrating. If the camera pan two ticks to the left, is Barb there like choking on another worm, being like, "I'm right here." <laughs> Barb's like, still like banging at the door for the tree stump, being like, "Let me out!" <laughs> like, I'm, I'm serious about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the other thing to say about it that makes it that really, I'm just, I'm just so impressed with the show. Partly because it came out of nowhere and it was just so entertaining and so pleasurable to have those episodes to watch. But really, these 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 brothers, these Duffer brothers, they showed just an amazing control of their story. 
in terms of what to show, what not to show, how far to go in terms of this, this, the nostalgic celebration and, and, how, and when to pull back. And I'm thinking about that in terms of not just the very end of the, of the season where we have that the beautiful, you know, heartwarming Spielbergian moment where the family's reunited at the, you know, they're having Christmas dinner together, but also the almost the, the visceral, really upsetting Cronenbergian homage where the kid has to be the grown up and be like, well, I didn't, I did just vomit up a space worm in the bathroom, but I'm going to give my mother and brother the happy dinner that they want. But also the way that they used Harbor, not just through the whole season, but in that finale, the flashbacks to him and his daughter. Now, you knew I was going to get got by those scenes. Those were really hard to watch. Yeah. But they were delicate with them. You know, that is an extremely underrated thing for storytellers to know how to do, which is we want to show you the emotional wound. We want to show you something painful because we know what we can mine from the audience by doing that. And if that sounds cynical, I don't mean it to. That's really what storytelling is. But they didn't overdo it. It did not feel gratuitous. No, I, I agree with you. As someone who has swung a child around and then like been terrified, like when she starts coughing once. So, I was I was just very impressed with that with that tonal control, especially especially on a service like Netflix, which generally doesn't seem to punish overindulgence. Um, you know, I, it, like they said in these interviews, if they had told Netflix they wanted to do thirteen or fifteen episodes, Netflix would have probably been like, "Cool, where yeah, do you right. sign the check? or don't or do four or whatever you want to do." Um, so to, to know, to call your shot like that when you're given the chance is, is pretty rare. So I think that's another reason why there's a lot of enthusiasm about this show, uh, probably even in the industry. Because it's yeah. like, I, these I, guys I, were I, given I, a golden ticket and they took advantage of it. I'll be really curious to see when they bring, come back with two, like whether they are so anxious to keep the wave going that they, they try to get in production soon and do, do two really fast so it comes out the same time next year. Or whether it takes more like 19 months, 20 months. Yeah, one thing to say, especially the way TV works now, um, shows get renewed, wink, wink, renewed, way before we get the official announcement. So when you're reading these interviews, um, read the Duffer Brothers interviews, and then read, just read, put air quotes in your head a lot. Yeah. Because they keep saying, should we be given the amazing opportunity to do more? Right. I mean, I know nothing about this, but I guarantee you they've been in a room for three months talking yeah, about also the Yeah, also just the, the social response, the anecdotal response to this show is stronger than anything they've had since early Orange in House of Cards. Yes, exactly. And, so, and, the way Netflix, and that is exactly what did... Netflix wants in the world is people yeah. talking about and, their and stuff. And to keep their business model afloat and to keep things moving, it is more cost-effective for them to keep paying the Duffer Brothers and their writers, basically to have them breaking season two and then not make season two should this have, you know, if everything had gone gone sideways and, like, people had hated the show or it hadn't gotten a reception, it still would have been, like, fine for their totally made-up bottom line to have paid for that work because now they're going to reap the rewards of the fact that they are ahead of the curve. Like they, it's not like they're like, Oh shit, we have something here. We better, we better see if Winona's schedule is free. Like they did that work already, even if they're not admitting it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll be back on Monday. We'll talk a little night of and whatever else we come up with. And until then, uh, nice talking to you, buddy. Should I do on Monday? Should I do my, why I'm leaving New York essay? Should I just deliver it? <laughs> Goodbye on, to on all Andes. Yeah. Should should I, should I goodbye to all of that? Like I'm not leaving New York. New York left me. Goodbye should to I, all Alf. Should, should I work yeah. on that? <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I feel like Alf running over the president from House of Cards is a metaphor for my last few days in Brooklyn. It, it's it's touching. See you it's later, touching. Mr. Staples. I look I look forward to that. All right, I'll talk to you Monday, man. Bye. Great job, Bradsky.
Hey, this is John Favreau from Keeping It 1600. Uh, this week we talked about Trump's latest insanity, Hillary Clinton, the map. Uh, we talked to GOP strategist Mike Murphy. You can subscribe to Keeping It 1600 on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast.